then I hear a scream. And without seeing the person, I knew it was his wife. She's coming out of the room yelling for help, going, he does not look good. I'm yelling at him. He's not responsive. He does not have a pulse. So I drop the head of the bed and start compressions, yelling for help. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Rapper Sponsor and Podcast. I'm excited about the show today because I have a very special guest. My ER friend Keisha told me this crazy story she had of a patient and I just had to share it with you guys. Me and Keisha worked together in the ER for years. We were pregnant at the same time, had babies around the same time. And then she moved away and we don't get to work together anymore, but I'm so glad to bring her to the podcast so you guys can all share with how awesome a person she is. So Keisha, welcome to the Rap Response Around Podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah. So Keisha, before we get too much into the story, can you just quickly share with my listeners, how long have you been a nurse? What types of nursing roles have you had? And what are you currently up to with regards to your nursing career? So I've been a nurse for 13 years. It has been 13 years of ED, all of it, different level trauma centers. We've done some stroke. I've worked at PCI centers, all that. So ER all the way. And what are you up to currently? Currently, I am in grad school to be a nurse practitioner. Nurse practitioner, yes. And what do you hope to do with your NP degree? I have not put my finger on one thing exactly yet. I think I still definitely want to be able to work as an NP in the ER just because, you know, that's my my love. But I don't know what all I want to do with it just yet. Gotcha. Maybe some some teaching definitely down the line, but clinically ER and whatever else comes at me. Yeah, you're definitely wired for the ER environment. Just while we're talking about it, for people that are interested in ER, what do you love about ER nursing? Like what drew you to that? of all the different types of nursing roles? Um, so some of it was the, the figuring out because when we get patients, you really don't know. I mean, EMS gives you a report, yes, but for the most part, you really don't know what's going on with the person. And so it's, it's like a investigation kind of mm-hmm. to find out what is going on and to fix it in a short period of time. And so I definitely like that, you know, investigator role there and also just the the quick pace of 
figure it out, fix it, move on to the next one, do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I definitely like the pace of the ER as well. I like the constant new things come at your face all the time. I'm okay with the fact that everything's not perfectly organized. I just want to have a constant challenge, which is exactly what ER is the entire time. All right. So Keisha, I'm very excited for you to share this story. But before we like dive right into it, I just kind of want to set the stage here. So it's a Sunday afternoon during football season. You're working triage and a seemingly stable patient arrives. Can we just call him Cal for short? Is that... Okay with you, Okay, so Cal walks in. Tell me about how that interaction went. So this was actually like several years ago, even before I came at work with you. But this was back when different days in the ER meant something as far as, you know, your your Friday nights were going to be busy, your Saturdays and the day was kind of chill and then it ramped up. Sundays was not a whole lot going on. Easy day to work. It's not like that anymore, but at the time, that's what it was. So this is a Sunday football season. He comes in and, you know, I go through with every patient, my regular little spiel of, so what brings you in today? And immediately he was honoring and he was like, I don't want to be here. My wife made me come. The doctor called and said that you know, some of my labs were crazy and they want me to come to the hospital and she's been bugging me. So I kind of had to dig with him a little bit, like, what labs are they talking about? (laughs) Oh, my calcium's high. Did they give you a number? Because I like to ask, like, you know, did they tell you what it was just so we could kind of start figuring out and get a head start of, of what we're working with? It does surprise me how many patients come to the ER with the chief complaint of abnormal labs. And you're like, okay, which ones? I don't know. Right. So, oh, but but something's abnormal. Like, where, where do we start looking for the abnormal right. number? <laughs> We're going to repeat them all anyway. But at the same time, it would be good to know what should I start looking out for? What should right. I be concerned about right now? Right. <laughs> um, so he, he was not, again, he was not interested in being there. And so he definitely wasn't into sharing all the information he had. So he throws out like, 15, 16, something like that. And I'm like, immediately, it sounded like ridiculously high. And so I'm thinking, you know, this guy, he looks healthy, big, tall. Nothing about him says sick at all. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have any other complaints other than his wife bugging him about coming to, you know, see about these labs. So (laughs) I'm already thinking like, okay, this, it must have been like a, you know, bad draw, mistake with the results or something, but we're still going to figure it out. So he's telling me, um, you know, I guess his team was playing that day or whatever. And he was under the impression that he would come in and get, you know, like a quick little finger stick. And I could tell him exactly what the result was and he could be on his way, go home and watch the game. Not exactly how it works. So when I tell him this, I'm like, no, we're going to have to draw your blood, send it to the lab. You'll get it back in a little bit. But not as quick as you were thinking. He is kind of like, I don't have time for this. I need to go watch the game. I could take care of this some other time, some other day. I'm like, something about him felt different. <laughs> and usually, to be honest, I probably would have offered him an AMA form at that point, <laughs> but I didn't. And I kind of explained to him, I was like, well, look, you know, you're here. 
let's just figure it out now rather than you having to waste more of your time later in the week to come back again. It's going to be the same thing if you leave and come back. Let's just do it now. And he still gave me some resistance. And instead of giving him like the, the clinical, like, here's all the things that could be wrong with you. I just told him like, look, your wife is still going to be at home. If you go back home and tell her that you walked out of the hospital, she's going to be even more upset. She's going to love you some more. Just stay here, get it done. You could have an answer for her when you go home. He's like, that reached him. And so he's like, okay, cool. So EKG is getting done. Line labs, get the EKG signed. There was nothing about his EKG that, you know, was concerning to anybody. Not to me, not to the doctor that signed it, nobody. I even pulled him into like our little inside waiting area. There was a TV there. I put the game on for him. You know, just keep him. <laughs> you know, I could get him a room. At that facility, the, we had a flow coordinator. So triage decide the room flow, you know, tell you where they wanted the patient to go. So I kept him with me till I got his room assignment. And he ended up being assigned on a, his room was like on one of the main hallways. Mm-hmm. So I would keep, you know, I had to pass him to take patients back to their rooms and to get back to my triage room. But something, you know, I, I got him to his room and I thought that was it. You know, he's in his room now. We're done. Right. We'll get the normal result. He'll get to go home and watch the game. Right. Job, like, job well done. My right. job as triage nurse is, is done right now. But it kind of picked up from there because I guess we had, you know, built a rapport while we were getting through his his triage process. And, you know, we joked back and forth. He was honorary with me. I gave him some of that back and it worked for us. So the rest of the time as I'm triaging and taking the patient back, each time I pass his room, I would have to, well, not have to, but we exchange words. We Mm -hmm. would some joke or we'd say something to each other. At some point, his wife showed up. And so when I passed by, he stops me and he is like, hey, you know, this is my wife. And she said, oh, this is a nurse you were talking about. Da, 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 da. So he had told her about me and about the experience. I exchanged words with the, the wife to let her know, you know, she had her hands full. <laughs> but, you know, we were all fine. I go back to triage, get more patients in and out. And... On my way back to triage from taking somebody else to their room, I'd already passed this room, but then I hear a scream. And without seeing the person, I knew it was his wife. She's coming out of the room yelling for help, going, he does not look good. I'm yelling at him. He is not responsive. He does not have a pulse. So I drop the head of the bed and start compressions yelling for help. His nurse, who happened to be, we were really cool. She was like, basically like my work wife. Mm-hmm. So she's in another one of her patients' rooms. She comes out, sees me doing compressions, grabs the crash card, calls for more help. The whole ER shows up. Keita, what's going through your mind? Because last you knew, this guy's stable. He's going to get his results back and go home. Like as you're running to this room, what are you thinking about? Like, how are you feeling through all this? I am like, what in the world? Like everything that was going on with him at this point was totally off my radar when I was interacting with him before. I mean, I understood that a high calcium is not a good thing. 
I knew that it could lead to some cardiac stuff, but he did not look like any of that. His EKG didn't look like that. I didn't look at his labs, you know, when they came back because I wasn't his his primary. Right. But there was nothing that I was seeing that made me concerned about him, at least not in my head. Obviously, something made me give him a little extra attention to make him stay. But if you had asked me at that time what I was concerned about, I wouldn't have a real answer for you. Yeah. Like, I, I did not know why I was concerned. I just was. And so when he coded, I'm like, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea what was, you know, what took place in between. Like, was it something he was responding, not responding well to or is this why he came in in the first place? Like, what is going on? I don't know. Yeah. His nurse, which she's, you know, was a really strong nurse too. She didn't know. Like, nobody, it, it didn't make sense to mm-hmm. anybody as to his presentation in the beginning to where he was. Now, if you look at the labs and all that stuff on paper, it made sense. But you know how you're taught, look at your patient. Right. The patient didn't look like anything. Right. So you find out responsive, you discover there's no pulse, you start compressions, you call for help. How did the rest of the code go? So, okay, here's, we get real strange now because we're doing compressions and as you're doing compressions, his eyes open, he's grabbing your hands to stop and that's not supposed to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Or or maybe it is. You're just really good at CPR, Keisha. (laughs) Really high quality CPR. You're perfusing that brain. <laughs> well, they don't teach that part in ACLS. Like, so, I mean, I know, like, obviously, the patient's response, if you stop, they say that at some point, but you never expect that to happen. So, when it happens, you, you stop, not because it's what you're supposed to do, but because you're scared, because, right. <laughs> you know, they're not supposed to grab back at you. So, you know, he does this. So, I stop. And Immediately, I stop, and then he just goes out again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back on the chest. We're looking at each other, and then we're back on the chest. And, you know, you do it for a couple of seconds, and he's back again. And we keep going in and out, in and out. He keeps, as far as, like, his rhythm goes, initially, he was in asystole. There was some pulseless VTAC. There was some VTAC with a pulse. There was... I think like his last rhythm that we got was a complete heart block, third degree heart block. And in between all of that, this in and out, alert, unresponsive, he was shocked 19 times. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And the reason why was because he kept coming back. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if this was anybody else that, you know, stayed in one of these lethal rhythms, we probably would have called it at some point earlier than that. But with him, we kept getting an alert patient back. Yeah. It was like a new code all the time. If you shock 19 times and you do a shock every two minutes, you're looking at like a 40 minute code at that point. Yeah. So you yeah. guys were like, we are we are getting this guy back. Like, we have a chance here. We're perfusing him. He's waking up. Yeah. Yes. Like, each time he came back, it was like the code restarted. We, we have a brand new patient and we have to, you know, go ahead and work some more. Once we got 
him back to that third degree heart block, we did the um, pacing. Mm-hmm. By this point, cardiology is already in the room. And so cardiology now, they kind of took over the code and they were kind of leading us as to keep going, what to do, that type of thing. Got him rushed off to the cath lab. Mm-hmm. And then I know that he went to ICU from the cath lab. When I, I did not go back to triage for a long time. I think Flo took over triage for me for a while because I couldn't pull out of the room. Like, yeah. You know, everybody got there and, you know, I, I gave up uh, compressions to probably one of the texts or something, but I could not leave because he wasn't just this hypercalcemia in room, whatever. He was cow. He was yeah. this guy I was just talking to, I was laughing with. I met his wife. I knew yeah. things about him that was not in his chart. Like he was a, a real person to me at this point. And I know we're taught like in nursing school and everything, you know, don't don't look at your patients as their diagnosis, their people. They are. But for ER nurse and for what we have to do in order to do it well, mm-hmm. we cannot see everybody as somebody's husband or somebody's grandpa or whoever they really are. They have to be the chest pain or the cardiac arrest or the whatever their problem is. Because I have to be able to do everything to save your life, do that effectively, and then walk out of your room to my next room and walk in there with a smile like nothing just happened. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that when you know this person, when they have a a name and a a whole life behind them. Can I just say too, there is something really emotionally powerful about doing compressions on someone who's looking at you, you know, or who's <laughs> reaching up. And No, sure. I've had this happen several times, especially in the height of COVID, where you're looking into someone's eyes and compressing on their chest and they're they're looking back at you and reaching up and grabbing your hand. I had this happen with a young guy. He was like 50 years old. And as I'm like doing CPR, I'm just telling him, we're fighting hard for you. We are fighting hard right now. We actually gave Versed because Talk about PTSD, the memory of someone doing CPR in your chest. Good Lord. Really, let's give this guy some Versed. It is, it's okay to give Versed in a code if the patient's kind of waking up and right. experiencing what's happening. But um, I'd only experienced that a couple times prior to COVID, but it happened several times um, during all the COVID codes that I was a part of. But yes, definitely I can understand the bond of doing CPR with someone who's interacting with you while you're pressing on their chest. I'm sure you you wanted more than anyone in the room to save that guy. I, yes. I totally get how emotionally yes. bonding that experience is. Yes, for me, this needed to, it had to work. There, there was no, we could not lose him. We had to keep going. And the fact that he kept coming back yeah. helped the whole team to feel that, like nobody wanted to, to stop. So I did not leave. I, I stayed through the whole code ran over to um, cath lab with him. His wife was there the entire time. Wow. We, I think, because we did have people like, you know, standing in the doorway with her and kind of trying to explain and everything. But how do you, you know, if she had not been there when it happened, then it would have been easier to, you know, go have her sit in a consultant room and just give her updates. But she was there. You can't 
pull her out of the room and be like, oh, let <laughs> me do my thing. I'll come get you later. No. Um, yeah, she wants to be there, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so she was there the whole time. She Cath Lab had like their own little waiting area. So we took her over there and, you know, helped her. We had a patient advocate there and everything. They helped her call some people if she needed somebody with her and they stayed with her. I came back over and went back to triage. Yeah. Before I went back to triage and people, I had to take a stop in the restroom and of course I cried. I mean, I don't even know. Like it was just the the culmination of all the emotions of me feeling like I was getting to know this guy, of me not having a clue what just happened, of me having somebody grab my hands while I'm doing compressions. Like it was a lot. None of it had ever happened before. You know, at that point in my career, I'd obviously done some codes, but I think at that point I could still count how many codes I had had. I could still count how many of them didn't make it. Unfortunately, I've lost count now. But, you know, at that point, it was still kind of new to me. And I really needed to like process, like, what is this? Mm -hmm. I know this is what I signed up for, but wow, I did not know that it would feel like this. Um, when so took a minute, washed my face, went back to triage. Like none of that just happened. I was pretty sure I did not check on him after going up to ICU because honestly, I thought that that day was his last. It was unheard of to shock somebody 19 times. I, I was surprised that he made it that far. And I was for sure that it would be a wrap by the end of the night. So whenever I came back to work, I didn't I didn't pull up his chart. I didn't check on him because I kind of didn't want to confirm what I mm -hmm. was sure of. Yeah. So about a month or two later, I'm at work, probably another Sunday again. And the unit secretary, we have our little Spectralink phones and um, she calls me and she says, um, hey, there's somebody up here at the desk for you. And I'm like, at this point, there's nobody that should be, you know, I'm like, Ooh, looking for nobody <laughs> showing up at my job or anything. And she's like, I don't know. I don't know who he is, but he's in, you know, this law enforcement agency's uniform. And so now I'm like, you're like, oh, the cops are looking for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to run through my head like, you know, I'm I'm pretty straight and narrow, but I'm running through my head like, what did I do? Did I, what could this be about? Couldn't come up anything. So I walk out there and I do see the officer standing. You know, there's this big tall guy, but his back is turned. So I kind of walk up to the secretary and I'm like, hey, somebody looking for me? Because I didn't just want to walk up to him and be like, hey, it's me. <laughs> so when I say that, he turns around. He's like, there she is. And as he says that, you know, we make eye contact. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's Cal. <laughs> so, I mean, he picks me up. And this guy, he had to be like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, somewhere around there. I'm only 5'3". Picks me up. He picks you up? <laughs> picks me up. Gives me the biggest bear hug ever. He's like in full tears. And he's like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, he must have said thank you like 50 oh seconds. gosh. And, you know, at some point he puts me down. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, his wife, she kind of came around the corner because 
they actually came back to say thank you to everybody that, you know, had helped that day. They brought us cupcakes. We always like right. the cupcakes mm-hmm. was, was good. And she said to me, you know, my husband is very stubborn. I don't know how you got him to stay, but I'm so glad that you did. And that hit me because I don't know how I, I mean, I know how the whole thing transpired, but I don't even know why. I don't know why I didn't just be like, okay, well, since you don't want to be here, here's this AMA form, this, 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 sign the bottom. I don't know why I didn't do that. To this day, I still don't have an answer as to what made me push him and try to convince him and give him that extra time and be like, look, let me reason with you. Let's just do this. You're here. Let's find out. Let's give your wife an answer. Like all of that I did. I don't know why. Can I just say like, this is the part of nursing that they can't teach you in nursing school. Like, they teach you how to give IM injections, how to pass the meds and how to do the skills. But no one teaches you how to bond with the patient and make a connection to help them like be compliant with their treatment like that. No one teaches you that. You just have to have that innately. And, and Keisha, you do have that. It's a spicy version, but it works with him, right? Like, that's what he needed was someone to like go head to head with his orneriness and to make him stay. And man, that's what saved his life. So it's not just was, the nursing skills. It's like, do you have the ability to connect with your patients? I think he was so used to being able to intimidate people and not in necessarily a mean way. I don't think he was trying to be mean, but I think he was so used to being able to control situations and have people back down that when I didn't, it was like, <laughs> oh, who are you? I love this. <laughs> you know, I think that just moved him the right way. And I mean, like you said, it's something I do. I feel out people to see, like there's, I can't do that with every patient. But I feel people out to see how I need to deal with them. Can I joke with you? Do I just need to be straight and to the point with you? You know, what do I do? I need to give you some honoriness back. Like, Mm -hmm. what is it I need to do to connect with you so that one, I could do my job. Two, I can help you and we can both walk away better. And you had mentioned this earlier about triage, how you have a different patient every time. You almost have to be a bit of a chameleon and not not change who you are, but kind of change your approach depending on who's in your room. Like yes. I remember I had a time room 17 and 18 back in the ER. They're like mm-hmm. a share a curtain. Mm-hmm. In 17, I had this just rude, drunk, yell, like he just just really difficult to work with. So I'm like, listen here, buddy, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, you're gonna sit back and assure respect. I'm like, I'm like being tough, Sarah, right? Uh-huh. And then in room 18. It's the sweet little grandma. So I'm like, hey, Mrs. Johnson, here's what's going on. It's almost like I had two different personalities as I'm being sweet, nurturing, tender nurse in room 18. And then like, I don't take no for an answer in room 17. And you kind of have to do that. I mean, as any kind of nurse, but definitely as an ER nurse, when you're constantly having turnover of patients of like going from, all right, listen, dude, you're staying, you need to have this. I'm going to go head to head with you. And then having to be very tender and then having to use humor like I've had yeah. times where I'm like joking in one room and then I walk in the next room and I have to tell the family, we found cancer in your brain. And you have to totally shift gears, change mm-hmm. your facial expressions, change your body posture in an instant. And again, that's a skill that they don't teach in nursing school. You kind of have to come it, into it, it. It cannot be taught anywhere. You have to, I can't even teach you that if I'm precepting you in the ER. You just have to 
be able to do it for yourself. You know, you can you can watch me do it and see like, oh, I'll try that. It may not work for you, <laughs> you know, when you try because it has to be the the right mood and attitude for the right patient. If you mismatch them, it can go bad. But you have like in triage, you have like 10 seconds to feel out how do I approach this person? Uh-huh. And in his case, it just worked. It worked for all of the right reasons that day. And I don't know. I didn't He's alive know because of it. But <laughs> I remember it just like it was last week. So Keisha, before we dive into like what your takeaways were from this crazy experience, I just wanted to take a minute to break down hypercalcemia, like usually what the causes were. So usually it has something to do with the parathyroid hormones. So like hyperparathyroidism or cancer, which kind of releases some of the same hormones. Patients that have had too much calcium intake or excessive vitamin D supplements, or they've had severe volume depletion leading to renal injury and then calcium buildup, thiazide, diuretics, lithium also raises your calcium levels. Those are the usual culprits, but did he have any of these to your knowledge? So to my knowledge, no. He may have been on a diuretic for his blood pressure, but he wasn't obviously dehydrated. So that wasn't it. As far as like cancer, if he had a cancer, it would have been an undiagnosed one yeah. because didn't, he didn't have any history. Actually, when he came in, he had no physical complaints whatsoever. Yeah, because usually but, if the calcium is that high, there's some sort of symptom, right? Right. Like, you know, there'll be abdominal pain or nausea or having like some paresthesias or muscle weakness or they'll have mental status changes like delirium or confusion or even like really, really severe coma. I mean, usually there's something. EKG changes. Right. He didn't He didn't have any of that. If he did, like, let's say he was a little bit nauseous, it had to be something that in his mind, he was contributing to something else. But there was nothing going on with him that he felt had anything to do with, with these labs. And there was nothing going on with him that I could see. Have you heard the phrase stones, bones, groans, moans, and psychiatric overtones for hypercalcemia? I have not, but I think I'm going to remember that. <laughs> okay. All right. So, bring it up. so stones refers to like renal calculi from calcium buildup, and then that can cause renal failure to make it even worse. Right. Bones is that obviously your bones store calcium, and there's uh, several bone diseases that can cause calcium to release into the bloodstream. Groans is like all the GI symptoms. So like the abdominal pain, the nausea, the vomiting. The moans is like the malaise, fatigue, lethargy. And then psychiatric overtones is the confusion, memory loss, psychosis. And then obviously some psychiatric histories can lead to someone having to take lithium, which raises your calcium level. So I'll see it again because I always forget. Stones, bones, groans, moans, and psychiatric overtones is a way to remember Hyper- <laughs> I love these cheesy things. And he had none of those, right? To your knowledge. No, no. In his case, I think if we had to just pick what was most likely wrong with him, I would think it might have been like a parathyroid thing. You know, to be honest with you, I've had patients with high calcium, you know, usually cancer patients or, but often it's like incidental finding. Like they come in yeah. for something else. They're like, oh, look at that. Your calcium's high. I guess we'll give you a little extra IV fluids. But right. if his labs had come back and he truly did have a calcium of 13, like they had told him he did, what would have been 
the treatment for him, if he hadn't coded, obviously the treatment was epinephrine and CPR, but if, <laughs> if he hadn't coded, what is like the usual treatment for hypercalcemia? So the usual treatment definitely would have started with IV fluids, which I think he did get some saline there. But beyond that, we will probably go to calcitonin because we want to, you know, decrease that calcium. So get the kidneys to expel more of it. And then there's the biphosphonates. I know they to kind of pull more calcium back into the bones, but that's usually like, I know you give biphosphonates for people with like osteoporosis and osteopenia, that type of thing. But it's more like a long-term. Mm-hmm. It is, I've not really seen it in, like, I I guess that would probably be something he might have started up in ICU. Yeah, we don't really give that as ER nurses, honestly. Yeah. Right. Because I know, like, some of the more popular biphosphonates are, like, those once-a-week shots mm-hmm. is how they normally give those. Any other treatment that they might do? What's the one? Zolodronic? Acid? Yeah, never (laughs) given it. You? I have not. No. What I do know about it is it's a thing they use a lot in cancers and bone cancers, especially. It is not exactly a cancer treatment per se, but apparently it helps. How it works is it, it draws the calcium back into the bones. And so that's helpful for people that have bone cancers and they're losing their, you know, their bone density. It, you know, mm-hmm. kind of counters that. But as far as giving that in the ER, no. <laughs> so so back to Mr. Cow, what made this case so memorable for you? You said you feel like, like you remember like it was yesterday, but what do you, what about it was so memorable? For me, it was one, the fact that I handle him differently as far as, you know, not even offering the AMA and really pushing him. Something was pushing me and I still haven't figured out exactly what that was. But having that push, having the fact that I had just been talking and laughing with him and then he's coding, that had never happened to me before. Having him grabbing my hands during yes. CPR, that had not happened before. So he, he was definitely a, a patient of first for me. Mm-hmm. I had not seen a calcium that high before. And then I think being as confused as I was about what just happened also made him stick with me. Because now, whenever I get a patient, and like you mentioned, it's chunk of the patients that come into the ER are coming because they were referred by their primary because of some abnormal lab. I always ask them which one, what lab it is that was abnormal and ask if they gave them a number, like what what number did they say it was? And then I treat them as if it's real. (laughs) Yeah. Until we know different, whether they look like it or not. Because he did not look like what I had experienced uh, hypercalcemia is supposed to look like. All that I had seen before, their numbers were lower than his, and they presented way sicker than he did. They had cancer and it was known. They had hyperparathyroid and it was known. Or they came in with the stones, groans, and moans, and that was... Like he had to grow toes. <laughs> right. 
there was something saying, oh, let's dig further. And then, like you said, you find the calcium and like, oh, this is what it is. It's the calcium that caused this other thing. But I had not had anybody that came in because of the calcium without any of these other presentations. So all of that together made him stick with me. And then that bear hug two months later. Yes, I love that part of the story. That, I think, is probably my favorite part of it because we don't get thank yous a lot. When we do, it's usually based on on manners. It's because, you know, this person took care of me. I should say thanks. Thank you. But and then the people who we do like these bigger things for, we just don't get to see them again. Well, they'll never remember you either. Like, yeah, if they come in coding, they never really met you. It's right. so different whenever you triaged them and got to know them before they coded. Right. So the fact that he remembered that he, you know, he and his wife took the time to show that gratitude. I mean, you know, I'm sure he was in the ICU for a bit, probably, probably had to go to rehab after, had whatever else going on with him and then still remembered like, look, I need to go back up to the hospital and tell those people thank you. So that definitely stuck. I've I've gotten some good thank yous before, but that definitely was my best one yet. I love it. So if you were going to summarize all this, like the, the biggest nuggets or pearls of wisdom from this case, like let's say you're talking to a new grad nurse that you want to prepare for potential hypercalcemia patients in the future. What, what are the biggest takeaways for you? Not to be cliche, but trust your gut. Yeah. Even if you can't clinically explain why, still trust your gut. It'll come later. And if you're wrong, it didn't hurt anything. But go with your gut. And then as far as like, like I learned from the whole situation, treat the numbers until you know the numbers. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Don't prove it otherwise. Yeah. Right. Don't don't start giving like any heavy drugs or anything that could cause a problem, but keep your eye on them as if those numbers are true until you know for sure. That's perfect, Keisha. (laughs) I love those two things. Keisha, it has been so good chatting with you again. I've missed working with you so much. This is a really good case. Thank you for taking time to share it with me and then now with all of my listeners. So I hope those of you out there that are triage nurses or any type of nurse, when a patient goes in with a quote-unquote abnormal lab, this might be the sickest patient in <laughs> in your unit. So be on the lookout, you know, have your, your spidey senses turn on and, you know, advocate for the patient until you can prove that they really are safe to go home. I think this this story speaks volumes to the importance of advocating and using those like God-given skills, not the ones that you were taught in nursing school, to make sure your patient gets the care they need. Mm-hmm. Most of what you're going to need to know, you did not learn in nurses. <laughs> yep. Agreed. All right, Keisha. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Have a good rest of your Friday. You're welcome. Thank All you. Right. Goodbye. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? 
So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.